and welcome to our podcast, Critical Thinking, Critical Issues. Today, we will be discussing new ideas to help you navigate the investment environment right now. We will address some key investment and research ideas that can help professional investors prepare for the future so that they can reach their unique investment goals effectively. My name is Annabel Mathiesen. I'm the CEO of Mercer Norway, and I will lead this discussion. With me today, I have two experts. So I'm pleased to be joined by Rich Newsom and Joe Holden. Rich have more than 30 years experience advising clients on investment governance um, strategy. And he has also led our OCIO business. Joe Holden is our global head of strategic and manager research. Welcome to you both. Yeah, thanks, Annabelle. Thanks, Annabelle. Thanks for having us. We are met with new questions and new dilemmas when navigating during crisis. And I don't think we can start uh, this discussion with, uh, unfortunately, addressing the Ukraine crisis. The conflict in Ukraine has both short-term and long-term implications for the real economy, for capital markets and for investment portfolios. I would like to ask my first question to you, Rich. Um, How do you think the crisis will impact the global economy more generally? Well, first for our clients, you know, I I look at the crisis and I I get angry and I get sad and I'm horrified at the humanitarian implications and also shocked that a world leader of a significant economy would, would initiate this type of invasion and cause his country to be thrown out of the global economic system. And our, our clients are bringing those same emotions into the investment committee decision-making room. So this isn't like um, a housing market bubble or, or crises, the dot-com burst crises we've had in the past where people may have strong emotions about it, but, but not, not to the level we're seeing with Ukraine. So, so, First, we, we share that, that sense of sadness and outrage. And secondly, we recognize that those emotions are coming into the decision-making room with our clients. As our clients turn to acting as fiduciaries, trying to do the right thing with, with usually other people's money, trying to act in a way that's prudent and reasonable and in the best interest of beneficiaries, they're, they're really considering three aspects of the crisis. One is the impact on the economy. Uh, the, the invasion has triggered a stagflationary shock. Oil prices, wheat prices, natural gas prices are going to be higher, so inflation will be higher. And at the same time, um, those those higher prices for key commodities for food will will reduce economic growth. And then there's the impact on sentiment, business and consumer sentiment, and just the volatility. So so lower economic growth, higher inflation because of the impact on sentiment. Central banks are going to go slower on interest rate hikes and the end to quantitative easing than they might have otherwise. And and so long-term interest rates have spiked because we see nominal interest rates, because we see slower central bank action coupled with higher inflation expectations. So clients have had to reposition their strategic gas allocations and their strategy with that in mind. The probably more urgent issue for clients has been to consider divestment of Russian securities. And, and some clients had the ESG and, and other 
policies in place or stakeholder expectations where they were able to take a decision to invest quickly. Others didn't have that and applying a fiduciary perspective have needed to worry about realizing value on the Russian securities that they still hold because those are assets that if they can get value from them would help fund their mission. And and that decision-making between divestment and, and holding to try to get some value has been difficult given the passion that people are bringing to the room around around the invasion. Securities have lost value, haven't been traded, and, and the benchmark index providers have taken them out of the index. So to some extent, in practice, this has become a smaller issue, but in principle, it's a huge issue and a lot of passion around that. So clients are, are navigating that. And then as they look forward, they're modifying their ESG policies. You know, what if another country does this again? We want our ESG policy to actually speak to this. But they're also revisiting, do we invest in nuclear power generation if we weren't doing that? Do we invest in natural gas, even oil production, to try to help the world become more independent of Russian supply, to try to help the world economy navigate this without, unfortunately, the increase in energy prices, the increase in food prices, both both Russia and Ukraine being major um, agricultural exporters. That falls more on the poorest parts of the world population. So this is a really bad event from an ESG standpoint, even outside the humanitarian catastrophe in Ukraine. So that, that's been occupying every people's, everybody's minds and, and um, taking up a lot of governance bandwidth for, for good reasons. Uh, the markets have navigated this fairly well outside of Russia, where, where the markets have been closed. I mean, Annabelle, if I was just going to pick up on the points that Rich made about ESG, I think what's definitely been front of mind over the last few weeks is the fact that, look, I mean, ESG has always been really complex, but that's definitely come to focus in the last few weeks. I mean, not least talking about sort of the energy issues that, that Rich alluded to. I think the other thing it makes me think about, particularly with reference to our clients, is the whole point around sort of uncertainty. So there are so many things that we don't know in terms of how long this is going to last for, the impact of sanctions, sort of policy reactions. I mean, we've started to see interest rate rate rises over the last couple of weeks. But just on that sort of uncertainty point, you know, it's always a problem for clients. Of course it is. And I don't know whether either of you saw it, but the team in the UK put out this really practical checklist that I liked So they were trying to get clients to think about things like maybe just taking a moment to look at whether there were any changes to asset allocation or managers that they were planning and thinking about the impact of lower liquidity or higher um, volatility on those changes, ranging up to sort of more opportunistic points like whether, you know, if if equity and credit risk, um, sorry, credit spread risk was high, whether or not clients ought to be thinking about more tactical options for reducing exposure, so using things like futures or options or, or credit default swaps. So that's quite a nice practical way of, of helping clients through the through the situation. Great. Thank you. Thank you both. And and on your point, Rich, on, on inflation and interest rate, I will ask a question later on, on that. And, and I think we should also drill a bit further on, on the ESG and sustainable point. Um, and thanks for the practical uh, suggestion on that checklist. And, and I'm sure that the listener can can con- reach us and, and get more information about that. Joe, kind of moving on to, to kind of sustainable investing and, and probably more specific on, on energy. Do you think longer term that this conflict promotes more movement towards renewable energy? And what do you think, or how do you think the conflict means for sustainable investment decisions? 
So I guess on the renewable energy point, yeah, like without doubt. Um, and if you think back to COP26, I think the commitments for the um, developing world in terms of upping their investment in renewables sort of were, but, you know, they needed to do that three times over relative to, to, to where they are now to get to the COP26 commitments on, on, on sort of temperature reductions. And all of that is without the heightened urgency we've got at the moment. But it's sort of the short term and even the medium term that feel a lot trickier now, given the situation that we have with Ukraine at the moment. You know, I mean, we're going to have to do something really quite quickly on energy supply if we don't want the poorest in society to be hit worst by by rising prices. Now, Nick White, our strategic research director, is actually doing some work on, on something that we're terming the resource code. So thinking more broadly about the scarce resource issues that we have, so maybe don't avoid all commodities on ESG grounds because we're going to need some of them for the, the energy transition, obviously linking into to renewables there. But also just thinking a bit more broadly about or a bit more immediately about oil and gas. You know, I mean, these things, it has become clear, are going to be around for a good while longer. So maybe we really need to think a bit more clearly about engaging with the best of the worst, if that's what you want to sort of think about, the, the oil producers. And Nick actually did a podcast for us on this um, a couple of weeks ago. It's definitely well worth a listen. And we're also going to be talking about that idea of the resource code at our investment forum um, in Barcelona in, in a few days' time. In terms of the implications on sort of the, the wider ESG um, spectrum, we also put out a paper on that um, a, a few days ago. And that's definitely worth a read and picks up on some of the things that Rich mentioned in terms of our clients really having to take a moment, I think, to pivot and think differently about sort of what the crisis has meant for free SG. Thank you, Joe. Anything you would like to add, uh, Rich, uh, on that? I, I think many of our clients have been pursuing transformational investment, specifically as relates to climate change. And by transformational investment, I mean, they've they've been trying to mitigate the risk of climate change, the climate change because of the impact that would have not just to society, but to their overall investment portfolio as as really universal shareholders, as shareholders that hold a diversified set of investments across the world. For them, climate change, carbon, it's not an externality. It's priced into the performance of the overall economy over time. So it's going to hit their returns. So they've been trying to mitigate the risk, and at the same time, they've been trying to make money. And that that's pretty quickly led those clients, some of our largest, most sophisticated clients, to focus on investing in disruptive, clean, or green technology, things that um, carbon mitigation, carbon scrubbing, but, but also um, just substitute renewable energy technologies, battery technologies in all parts of the supply chain. So, so high-tech, low-tech, um, things around distribution, things around packaging – and and with oil trading above $100 a barrel, now it's back in the 90s, all of those technologies that maybe weren't um, working out as well as the investors had thought at the start, you know, some entrepreneurial ventures fail because they were competing with oil in the 50s or 60s a year ago. Well, at $90 a barrel oil, all those companies get a longer lifespan to get to proof of revenue, to get to NOI and a higher return on investment for the investors. And so um, that, that, that clean tech, green tech technology investment, which personally I believe is, is going to have to play a big role in, in the climate change migration, because if, if we don't make this cheap enough, 
then it's unlikely that China or India can afford to play. Those countries, in my opinion, can't can't give up per capita GDP growth rates to mitigate the risk of climate change unless the technology gets cheaper and and the substitute sources of energy gets cheaper relative to coal and oil and and other carbon emitting sources. So there's a lot riding on this on this clean tech, green tech investment wave. And all those investors are going to get paid a lot better the next couple of years. All those companies are going to have longer to get to proof of revenue, proof of NOI because of this crisis. So I, I hate to say silver lining because um, compared to 5 million refugees and counting, you, you know, I don't think any of us would have made this trade. But we are going to get a huge boom in those investments because of the higher price of oil. Yeah, one of the dilemmas. Um um, you mentioned, Rich, earlier, uh, the increasing inflation and also kind of the central bank is going slower uh, on, on interest rates. Um, Joe, um, I mean, this is not directly linked to the crisis because we have seen inflation increasing for some time. Um, what are the key drivers and to what extent will inflation and interest rates be impacted uh, going forward, do you think? Yeah, so I mean, I guess in terms of key drivers, it was reasonably straightforward coming off the back of um, the pandemic in the sense of just increased demand um, that had sort of been, been, been pent up. But obviously, everything's kind of been blown out of the water the last few weeks by commodity price rises. I think, and hopefully I've got this right, the stats say something like, you know, if oil goes up 10%, then the GDP impact is, I think, about 0.2%, and then the inflation impact is 03 well, if you think about you know, sort of the extent to which oil prices have risen, it's sort of 50, 60% year to date, just gives you a bit of a sharp intake of breath in terms of the inflation impact. And that's without even thinking about sort of the impacts of, of, of sanctions as they work themselves through. It, clearly, inflation is going to be higher for longer if we don't solve those energy supply issues and we're not going to solve those, those quickly. Is that going to mean some faster interest rate hikes? Well, I mean, we've already seen a couple in the last week or so. And there was actually, there was a nice comment from Rupert Watson in another podcast that we did a couple of weeks ago on the Ukraine situation. And he expressed a view that, you know, central banks certainly wouldn't be on autopilot for rate rises like we might have expected them to be coming off the back of the pandemic. And, you know, murmurs of stagflation are getting louder. That's obviously not great for investors. You know, it, it could well be that the saving grace on that point is the fact that inflation, sorry, unemployment's so low. Um, and I say any reduction in GDP will come off the back of that sort of that, that pretty strong post-COVID recovery. So, so I guess we'll see. But the question for our clients is how you know how are they going to navigate it? And I guess the issue is that there's no single asset class that covers all the inflationary scenarios. And if we were pretty certain that stagflation was going to win if that's the right terminology then you know you might look at index linked um, bonds you might look at commodities which again just sometimes make people bristle from an ESG perspective um but also maybe gold more specifically now we have put gold into our reference portfolios um but then an awful lot of the other sort of inflationary assets you might think of will struggle in in a stagflationary environment um but again, you know, we've put gold into our reference portfolios, but if we have a more balanced scenario medium term, then maybe gold wouldn't be your first choice either. So I guess, you know, the, the point that I'm trying to make is that 
A, we don't really know what scenario will play out. Obviously, there's an increased risk of stagflation. B, we don't know how long inflation is going to persist for. (laughs) This is going to sound very much like an investment consultant, but it is going to be about getting a balanced portfolio of inflationary assets. And maybe one way of thinking about that, rather than having a portfolio that's too diverse, is to think about those assets that maybe you're comfortable play to other roles that you need within the portfolio. So, you know, they might give you income, they might have a floating rate to mitigate rate rises, they might be more sustainability focused, or they might look to give you some sort of a liquidity premium, as well as providing you with that inflation protection. Because I think if we think too hard about one or two assets to maybe solve inflation for you, then I suspect that we might be a bit disappointed. Joe, I was struck by your comment earlier in the conversation about volatility. When I think about inflation and interest rates, I'm reminded of the Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. For our clients, you mentioned scenario analysis. The scenarios are really complicated now. We've never had, we've never come out of a pandemic, had a full employment or above full employment global economy, labor market shortages and still had record amounts of quantitative easing and fiscal stimulus aimed at the economy. Never had it. Academics, market practitioners are looking for the data. They look at the Spanish influenza pandemic, and and this isn't like that. We've just never had this confluence of global factors. So so this hugely stimulative side of what's going on. And then we get the Russia-Ukraine crisis, which creates a stagflationary shock. So we double down on inflation, but now we have something that's anti-growth happening and that's that's a crisis that hopefully could get resolved relatively quickly as opposed to be permanent and ongoing. And then the virus has mutated several times and surprised all of us. So, so on both sides, you have uncertainty about the outcome and these two these two opposite and opposing forces. And then with inflation, it, it you know, as soon as I'm in the committee room and I hear inflation or interest rates, I start trying to help the committee members nail down. Are they talking about short term and lo- or long term? What type of inflation impacts are they concerned about? You know, are they are they focusing on on their liability or financial needs side? If it's an endowment or foundation, what they have to spend, or are they focused on impact on the economy and on interest rates? Is it real or nominal? Is it short or long term? Because people talk past each other all the time. Inflation's not like some other economic variables. Inflation hits differently at every country, in every city in every business, in every household, for every individual. My, my consumption basket, my, my kids are older than Joe's. My consumption basket are different than yours, Joe's. And, and Annabelle, you and I live in two different countries. And, and, you know, just our consumption baskets, you mentioned going to the mountains before we started the call. Our consumption back, baskets are different. I'm headed to the beach. So, so that's a very prosaic example. But so, so what's going to happen is uncertain. What does it mean to us is complicated around inflation and interest rates, and then what do we do about it? And Joe mentioned some of the things, including gold. I've been going to the Mercer Insight community, our, our, our Netflix for strategic analytical capital, where several hundred of our investment management partners published their most recent stuff, to look at, well, what, what are investment managers thinking of to help clients address challenges and take advantage of any opportunities from the Russia-Ukraine crisis? or from reemergence from the pandemic, or, or around inflation and interest rate hedging. And the variety of possible solutions is very wide. The thought leadership that the investment management industry putting up is impressive, 
And, and there's no one size fits all answer. I mean, Joe mentioned several, but you know, for a given client, the, the answers can be different. I'm, I'm looking forward to um, being in person at our Barcelona Global Investment Forum in, in just about 10 days and also participating in, in the Learn, Share, and Connect sessions where we give the mic to our investment management partners and each of them presents their best idea right now for what, what clients should do. Because in that mix, I'm hoping we'll get a diverse build and get some answers. I can't really, I remember the dot-com blowing up. I, I was in Southeast Asia for the Asian financial crisis. I can remember other times of uncertainty, but not when we had these two massive opposing forces hitting. And, and there's nobody left at the decision-making table who remembers high inflation. You know, I'm not young anymore, but I wasn't in a major decision-making seat in the 1970s. And and um, I, I'm not going to talk about what I was doing because it's a public podcast, but uh, I think it involved music and, and long hair. Um, but anyway, uh, it, it uh, you know, we just don't have decision makers around the table outside of our Brazilian client base who dealt with high inflation before. And so it, it's it's sort of new for everybody. There's not really any useful data. There's lots of uncertainty, but there's several hundred investment managers that are giving us their latest innovations every day. And we're sorting through that with clients and getting, getting to good answers at the end of the day. It's just a very complicated decision-making process. I think you touched upon a lot of both ideas and important points there, Rich. Uh, and I mean, we are living in, in certain times. Uh, it is crowded and, and complicated um, to maneuver as a professional investor. Um, and and you said something about kind of Mercer Research um, community, but kind of more generally, kind of where do you see asset owners searching new ideas? Um, and and you also mentioned the forum coming up in in ten days, which is a forum. Uh, um, part of a series of forums around the globe, and and is it possible for asset owners to share their ideas uh, at these forums? Yeah, absolutely. I think because of the pandemic, asset owners have had to become digital. So, and, and then because asset managers and investment consultants have gone digital, also the problem of dealing with information overload has become more acute. You know, pre-crisis, if, if I went a day without checking email because I was on a plane or something in meetings, I, I would have a couple hundred. Now it can be over a thousand. And and this is with spam filters on and screening out people that, you know, have wasted my time before. It, it, it's, it's mainly investment managers sending me their latest ideas to try to get my eyeballs on their research, their webcast, their thing. And a lot of it's very good, but it may not be fit for purpose or it may just be repackaging of something that I've heard before. Um, so, so we've looked at that problem and tried to organize it for both our own consultants and managed researchers and the several thousand client-facing people we have and for our asset owner clients. And, and we, had a, we had a community of clients that were using our managed research digitally pre-crisis through, through Mercer Insight behind a subscription wall, getting access to our managed research. So we already had several thousand in-house, relatively sophisticated investment decision makers trying to find the best new ideas out there and hitting the same information overload problem I have personally, but but maybe more acute because if you're in a major sovereign wealth fund and you have tens of billions to allocate, you know, asset manager is going to really try hard to get their ideas in front of you. And they can't get on the plane anymore and they can't come see you in person. So they're all doing it digitally. So we organized that in the Mercer Insight community and it, it doesn't just bring all the information together and make it searchable. 
but it also, when I read something, if I like it, I rate it highly. And if, if Joe mentioned our colleague, Rupert Watson, if Joe or Rupert, you know, or you, Annabelle, if you read something and you don't like it, it, it it's, it's not what it said on the tin. It's not actually innovative. Good title. Not, not a good, not a good movie. <laughs> you know, it, 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 um, you'll, you, you won't rate it highly. So when I wake up in the morning, I'm looking for the latest on, on Ukraine, Russian analysis or what to do about inflation, or I'm prepping for a client meeting. I'll hit the community because I know people like me have looked for that same thing. And whatever time they spent reading got captured by the, by the AI and the system got captured by the robot to say, okay, this stuff seems to seems to really resonate with serious people and this stuff not. And, and so it's curated. And, and so I'm not wasting time. So somebody else has already invested the time to read the article that's just repackaging with a nice title and doesn't have anything new. And somebody else has read something that maybe didn't have the catchiest title, but is actually really good on that topic. And, and so like Netflix, which is my, my uh, you know, less productive um, digital consumer application, it, it organized that. But thanks, uh, Rich. I must say I have signed off myself to the Mercer Insight community. And in particular, I'm interested in private markets because that's an asset class where Norwegian investors are at least some of the large ones still immature. And, and I love the fact that I can get kind of the email every morning with the latest research on that and, and can really help our clients. So I see it's a tool for, for us as a kind of a firm, but, but it's definitely something I think will benefit uh, our, our clients as well. Um, so, so thanks for that. Um, Joe, you have been very close to the agenda at at, at the forum. Uh, any sneak peek uh, you can share with us? Um, we're soon coming to an end, but it will be be great to hear if you can if you have anything to share. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, the point that you made about um, your clients in Norway wanting to hear about private markets. Yeah, I mean that was sort of a, a familiar story across Europe when we were looking at feedback, um, and therefore. The agenda for the um, forum in Barcelona will be heavily biased towards private markets, but also sustainability was the other theme that um, that we were asked for. I, I think sort of broadly, though, I wouldn't want you to feel as though anyone who's thinking about coming along, that, you know, the focus of the forum is not just about Mercer standing there presenting our views. And this picks up very much on the point that Rich is making a second ago. You know, this is about bringing people together to discuss and share ideas and links very strongly to the ideas that we've got around the Mercer Insight community. So with the agenda for the forum in Barcelona, we'll start the conference by actually challenging the audience to think about some of the themes that we've got this year, many of which you've mentioned already, actually. So transition, um, resource code, inflation, diversification. and really want to challenge the audience to pinpoint where they might have gaps in portfolios. And then the rest of the day, we'll look at practical actions and sessions for filling some of those gaps. We're also going to have a good number of client panels. So, again, the audience will be able to hear from other investors about what they think about our ideas, but also talking about the way that they're tackling particular issues. I I probably would just want to note that we've got a very topical, um, fantastic keynote, um, Misha Glenny. So the author and broadcaster, um, an expert on Russia. He wrote um, a book called Mac Mafia. I don't know whether you've read that or you perhaps saw the the TV um, adaptation so really looking forward to, to, to his insights on um, on the current situation and just thinking about sort of how they might have, how we might have got to the point that, that we have. Now, for asset managers as well, it's just worth me, me 
mentioning that we've actually got a morning of events on the second day of the forum that's just for asset managers. And we're going to cover diversity, equity and inclusion within the industry. But we're also, as well as that, going to be having an open discussion between Mitch and I on some of the issues that are driving our agenda, giving some insights into what we're looking at and maybe taking some feedback from um, the asset management community on on, on how how we're doing and what we ought to be looking at. So it's a pretty packed agenda, but the real key focus is that it's going to be an interactive one, but also one that, you know, we will be looking to challenge the audience um, into to, to sort of what the actions are that they might want to might want to go away with. Well, I'll just add two things to that. One is for listeners who haven't been to a forum recently or ever, the long tail of niche topics that we have in the Learn, Share, Connect sessions, there's a couple hundred sessions. No, no, no participant does all of them to the best of my knowledge. What what's sophisticated in how staff at our asset owners do is they go through that list of a couple hundred titles from the investment management community. And they may even look at some of the pre-reads that the managers put out and they pick three, 10, 12 to, to participate in over the course of a couple of days. You, you build, it's almost like the World Economic Forum. You, you build your own menu of what you're interested in. And there may be topics you're not interested in, but they're right in the wheelhouse for one of your colleagues. And that's, I mean, some conferences have breakout sessions or separate tracks, but because we've left that part of the forums virtual, it's really a hybrid event, you, you can dive in and out for very niche content on, on just about anything under the sun that's going on investments. So that long tail, it's sort of like going on Amazon compared to, you know, I used to go into bookstores, I'm a bookworm, and, and I'd look for something and I'd have to order it because they didn't have it. I can go on Amazon and find niche stuff, stuff that's out of print. And that, that's what the Learn, Share, Connects sessions do. It matches up in a niche innovation with niche demand between asset managers and asset owners. So that that's worth checking out if you haven't before. The other topic that's out there, you know, alternatives ESG, as Joe mentioned, featuring very heavily, but China. What do we do about China? The world's second largest economy, or if you adjust for purchasing power parity, it's been the world's largest economy for a while. And um, I think pre-Russia-Ukraine, we had this view that the economies grew and got bigger and, and they would become more capitalist and more open and transparent and more rule of law. And, and Russia's really the counterexample where it, it's, it hasn't integrated. It doesn't play by the same rules as is becoming really painfully, horribly obvious. And um, despite huge natural resources, had, had massively underperformed Ukraine in terms of per capita GDP growth. Like what, what's the main thing a democratically elected government supposed to deliver to people is is peace and prosperity. Well, Russia's failed on both accounts. And um, I, I hesitate to draw the parallel with China because I hope and pray the Chinese government is better and smarter and, and will, will navigate its path to growth better than the Russian government. But our clients are drawing that parallel. They're looking at, Joe mentioned clients revisiting their ESG policies in light of the Russian invasion so that their policies speak directly to rogue actions by a nation state. As people do that, they're thinking about China and the tensions around the South China Sea and Taiwan and so on. And, and so the Chinese discussion is going to be going to be important because R- Russia was and is a tiny economy on the global scale. China's huge. Whether you overweight China against the market, the market indices or underweight it, there's an implicit bet there. It's one of those things where if you don't make a choice, you've made a choice. And, and so that, that's on the agenda and, and important and difficult at this point. 
I'd like to thank Rich and Joe for joining me today and for sharing their insights. And to you listeners for joining us. We talked about Mercer Insight Community, our digital research platform. It's really easy to sign up and entirely free. So register today. The website is insightcommunity.mercer.com. Also free for asset owners, the global investment forums we discussed. All information is available on mercer.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the series wherever you listen to your usual podcasts and please leave a rating. Don't hesitate to contact us. We're here to help. Our email is ctci at mercer.com. This content is for institutional investors and information purposes only. It does not contain investment, financial, legal tax or any other advice and should not be relied upon for this purpose. The materials are not tailored to your particular personal and or financial position. If you require advice based on your specific circumstances, you should contact a professional advisor. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers as of the date of publication are subject to change without notice and do not necessarily reflect Mercer's opinions. 